Hey there, are you a product manager or product owner? Do you have influence over the technology, the user experience, or altogether strategy when creating a software or digital product? Well, you're in the right spot. Welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast. We're here to understand how we can create digital products that people actually want and actually want to use. Because we know amazing user experiences don't just happen. All right, Sean, episode eight. We have today Rohini Pandey from Square. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of Square, but if you haven't, it's a very well-built product in the payment processing space. Uh, Sean, I know that you know a lot of our fans like to hear from some of the companies out there in the world that are you know, consumer-facing and uh, you know very top of mind in terms of when you think of Silicon Valley. So we've got Rohini today to talk a little bit about how they build their roadmaps, and prioritize. Yeah, I'm super excited. I've been using that product myself for a number of years in my side hustle. So I'm super super excited to hear what she has to say about um, human motivation, how she motivates her teams, how we build roadmaps. There's a lot to learn from her. It's a big product, serves a lot of people in a unique space too, right? It's like the very small business to consumer space. Yeah, and what's what's really cool is she works on the invoicing part of the product, which you know a lot of people you know don't always think of as maybe the funnest thing to work on. But she has some really really great stories that she has heard from customers that are so impactful. Yeah, so let's get after it. Here we go. This is our interview with Rohini Pandey from Square. So Sean, next episode here we are. Today we're going to be speaking with Rohini Pandey. And she's a product manager at Square. And I met Rohini. We met at, back at the industry conference in, in Cleveland in September. And we were sitting at a round table. And Rohini started to talk about some different ways that at Square, she manages her team's roadmap and how they prioritize. And I found it very interesting and asked her if she'd join us today. So Rohini, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on. So just to get us going, would you mind just kind of introducing yourself, giving us some of your background, your role, you know, how you got to be where you are today? Sure, sure. So um, I started off as a computer engineer who decided after graduation to not be in front of a computer programming anymore. And uh, so I went into kind of like a technical consulting role after school and did that for a few years, became a road warrior, kind of got to have an expense account and travel around the the country, which was pretty fun. Um, After that, I realized that I could either continue on that technical route or try something different. So I went back to school and did grad school to get my MBA and then realized there was a nice, um, cool new role called product management that was the intersection between, you know, my technical and business side. So just kind of stumbled upon product as a career and fell in love with it, worked at a lot of startups um, on the West Coast, and then went to Square just a few years ago. And I work on the Square Invoices product line for the company. Very cool. I have a quick question for you. So where did you go to um, get your MBA? I went to the University of Chicago, so on the south side. Awesome. Yeah. I went to, I went to the Simon School, uh, University oh, okay. of Rochester. Cool. My MBA. And I'm curious to know what you think about that in, in the context of product development. Do you think the MBA was helpful? And if so, how do you think it was helpful? Sure. I get a lot of questions from people who ask if they should be getting their MBA. And I think that's such a, it's, it's a case by case question. It's an expensive education for sure. 
uh, for me, it was really worthwhile because it helped me kind of break down the engineering mindset I had and think about things and solving problems in a different new way. And so a lot of the frameworks I still use day to day. Um, the frameworks that I learned in B school, I, I still use in our strategic planning or competitive landscape comparisons and things like that. And so I think it's a great way to get hands-on experience, but it's not for everyone. Oh, I agree. And it, is exp- <laughs> it can be a very expensive proposition. Very expensive, exactly. But how do you say no to anybody who's looking for more education, right? So Yeah, I, I always say that if I won the lottery, I would just go back to school. I would just learn as much as I could on different topics. That would be so much fun. Yeah, for me, I think that it, there's a lot of quant tools in the MBA program, at least the Simon School. So there's a, a lot mm-hmm. of statistical tools that I think were valuable and in, in that whole sort of approach to business was valuable. Yeah. But. Yeah, we had a great um, program that was more on the experiential learning uh, at Chicago. And so you built your own business or, or you did competitions on something that you built yourself. And it just kind of uh, demystified a bit of, of what entrepreneurship meant for me. And I think that entrepreneurial side is really important as you kind of take on product, especially early stage products. I, I couldn't agree more with that. I do think having a little bit of knowledge around the language of business and accounting, yeah. and all those sorts of things can't do anything but help you build better products Absolutely. and to know how the business is thinking. Like exactly. to know that at the end of the day, we always have to tie our success back to an ROI of some sort and profit. Right. Yes. It, it was great. I mean, I think, Kind of like what you were saying, Sean, it was the first time for me to even see a balance sheet or an income statement. That was like the first time I've ever even looked at those things. And so to be able to speak that language now was incredibly helpful. Cool. So let's jump into the meat. Yes. So today's episode is really, you know, we've we've had some episodes around like vision and, you know, how to think about products at a high level. Today is really about getting in in the weeds, very tactical you know, what do we do with roadmaps? Just to start off with that, I think, you know, a lot of companies, they define roadmap in a different way. So just for you guys, how do you differentiate between what a roadmap is and then a release plan or a project plan? Yeah, I I kind of think of all of these um, artifacts as different levels of detail, kind of zooming in and zooming out. So for us at Square, or at least on, on our team, Uh, on invoices, we have the highest level, which is kind of our strategic plans that include like the vision, the one to three year horizon outlook of what we're going to go accomplish, um, our competitive and market landscapes and things like that, our customers' jobs to be done at a high level. So we have that plan. It almost looks like a business plan, but it's our strategic view of of where we want to take this product over the next few years. And then uh, a level deeper, we have our quarterly, it, it could also be multi-quarter goals. We use OKRs as the way to kind of outline um, those, that level of detail. Um, and then we have our actual roadmap. And that includes all of our projects that are in flight or in the backlog. So the roadmap would have line items for each work stream that's going on right now, and then link out to even more details like our and your JIRA tickets, um, our launch plans, um, things like that, that offer even more detail if you get want to get into the weeds. But most of our cross-functional team kind of looks at things at that roadmap level and, and when we expect timelines and milestones to be hit. Very cool. So at the company level, they're setting the vision strategically for the product. That's bird's eye view. And then you get further and further down and you're getting more and more specific with how you're looking at that. 
Exactly. And and really, when you say company level, that is actually our team, our product team. We're the ones making those goals and aims for, for everyone. Got it. It really helps kind of tie the team and like make sure that we're all held accountable for the things that we've just said we were going to go accomplish. It's not like some consultant that came in and said, here's what you should do for your business. Um, you kind of are very attached to the goals that you set for yourself. And so it's intentional and it's by design to do it that way. Yeah. I mean, so you're essentially getting a bunch of autonomy and then you're also accountable though at the end of the day. Exactly. Exactly. So a lot of different roadmaps are out there in the world. You know, even companies like Facebook and whatnot, they put a roadmap out for the public to see, but like you were saying, it's very, very high level. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you structure your roadmaps? Do you have timeframes on them? Is it certain chunks? Like how do you, how do you actually structure yours? Yeah, I've seen a few different styles. Um, and I think everyone should kind of use the style that works for their company and their culture. Um, I believe I even have a actual like Photoshop version of ours with some details cut out in a recent uh, blog post that I put out on road mapping. So if anyone's interested, it's on Medium. You can just search for me and you'll hopefully see it. But we use just a simple Gantt chart that we've built in Google Sheets. And it does have timelines by week. So I don't get granular into the day because that seems like too precise. Uh, but we do need week by week because we have a lot of cross-functional partners that rely on these release plans and launch dates so that they can coordinate things from the marketing um, communications. Uh, when engineering starts rolling things out, we want to put our support articles together. And so we want everyone who's either an account manager or anyone who's customer-facing, like account management or support or whoever else, to be able to see that and say, oh, this is why somebody's reached out to me because they've started seeing this feature that's been released. That's great. You mentioned OKRs in your first answer. So objectives, key results, mm-hmm. kind of like a KPI, right? Key performance indicator of some sort. Right. So I like the fact that you're tying that. And you also mentioned jobs to be done, which we're big Clayton Christensen fans here cool. as well. Yeah. So you tie the jobs to be done and your OKRs, I assume, are associated with your getting those jobs done for your customers. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to just pull on that OKR thing a little bit. So give me some examples of what you're using, what you're measuring to know that you're getting these things done. Yeah, I mean, I'll be completely transparent with you guys. I think that we aren't doing the best job at our OKR level. I'm going to put together a proposal, in fact, like this week to change our process for 2019, kind of going forward, because we have a few things that, like you said, are, are evergreen. There are key jobs that our customers hire us for, and we should continue driving those and making sure that we have the right kind of engagement and retention at those levels. But then there's certain amounts of risk-taking that we should also be comfortable with. And I I don't want our OKRs to get too stagnant and us getting complacent. Uh, So I also want to put in some objectives that are not just aggressive, but something new that we haven't really dug into and making sure that those are still accounted for in, in part and parcel of what we go do per quarter, just allowing us a little bit more bandwidth to make those extra bets. Cool. Well, I didn't want to derail us too much from the roadmap conversation, but you mentioned that, so I wanted to pull on that. Yeah, hopefully I'll have a better uh, answer for you in terms of our process next year. No, I like where you're heading. That's really neat. Just to set up the next couple of questions, do you use the concept of epics in your roadmaps? So we use a little bit of both. So we have the Google Sheets, which has the high-level projects. And then within JIRA and our ticketing system, we have epics. And so each epic kind of lines up to a work stream in our Google Sheets roadmap. And so we just pretty much pull these things from our backlog in order to put them into the roadmap. And then we break those down into individual tickets from an epic into JIRA. 
Got it. And then do you size the epic somehow as a first step once it gets in there? Yeah, we look at a few different things. We work in six-week cycles just to break the quarter up a little bit more in order to have a bit of a tighter turning radius. And one of those weeks is pretty much a set just for planning and our engineering planning. And so we look at the scope of work. um, We break it down into bigger tickets. And then we do a level of effort estimation that is really led by engineering to be able to help us say, okay, this piece is going to take either this amount of time or this uh, number of sizing. And then we do that for all of the projects that are in there to say, okay, this can actually most likely get done within six weeks, or this is really a 12-week project that needs to be either rescoped or reprioritized. Just to keep digging here for the listeners. So t-shirt sizes, do you use that or what's the, how do you actually put a number or size on those? Yeah. So uh, we actually first uh, start off with t-shirt sizing and then we go into more details. So we use t-shirt sizing for our backlog and that includes a level of effort estimation. The other pieces of our backlog in terms of a priority framework, um, we use Adam Nash's model, which he kind of has a great blog article. Again, for anyone that's interested, it's called the three buckets of prioritization. I've used that in the past, and we use that on the invoices team as well, where we look at customer feedback as one of the buckets, um, metrics movers as a second bucket, and then what I usually refer to as foundational work as the third bucket. So it's something that you know may not move a metric right away. No one's asking for it just yet, but in order to get to where you want to be in two to three years, you need to have this foundational or uh, visionary work kind of completed. And so those are the three buckets. We added an extra one called level of effort. And so what we do is we prioritize against those three buckets. And then we also look at the prioritization by level of effort. And we use t-shirt sizing for all of that. Again, because we're all analytical nerds, we, we like to have instead of small, medium, large, we go from extra small, which is a one to an extra large, which is a five. We put it in a spreadsheet and we actually start scoring things and having an average kind of pop out of that scoring system. Great. That sounds like then you're keeping some sort of measures too around the size of your backlog so you can control the flow of the requirements. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's always going to have to be a trade-off when you say something's actually going to go into the queue for building. And so we look at it by that, that score of level of effort and how impactful it'll be. And then we make a decision based on that. Okay. So your impact measures are sort of what bucket is it in? Is it foundational? Is it metric mover? Is it okay? Exactly. Yep. So we have this concept at ITX called the minimum viable backlog. (laughs) Okay. We know we need to keep the backlog at least this full to keep the team flow super healthy, right? Yeah, gotcha. And then we have an optimal backlog and then we've got our, you know, long-term backlog, which in theory should continue to grow forever, right? If we have great products, we know there's always something you could refactor or something you can improve or... Like that. That's cool. Thank you. Do you guys measure the size of your backlog? Is that a... Is that a factor? We don't. Um, and the way that we've gotten around measuring our backlog is that our six-week cycles are planned for um, well ahead of time. And so mm-hmm. we know kind of in that six weeks how many folks we have that, that are going to be um, kind of working on back-end server stuff, front-end, uh, mobile. We kind of know our capacity planning at that point. And then we say, okay, here are the big boulders that we want to put into the six weeks. And here are maybe the rock level improvements that we want to see. Everything that else that's kind of like pebbles and so forth are moved into individual sprints or kind of cherry-picked by the engineers themselves because they either find something frustrating or they want to improve uh, some specific part of their kind of code base that they own. 
And so we tend to not put too many pebbles into the planning. And if there are a bunch of, I'm going to keep going with this analogy, but if there are a bunch of pebbles, we'll actually start grouping them into themes of work and making them about a rock size. Interesting. That's neat. Do you guys measure the quality of the backlog in any way? And if you do, what tools do you use for that? What do you mean by the quality of the backlog? So how much rework has to get done based upon the poor requirements, for example, or... Oh, I see. I see. Defective user stories versus actual, you know, not true software bugs. In the the nature of software development, sometimes the user stories themselves can be defective. True. True. Yes. Do you have any sort of a measurement system for that? Um, We don't measure it in an analytical way, but what we do is when we go through our backlogs, we have um, folks from the design leads, the engineering leads, and the product leads all sitting in a room together on a regular basis. Every two weeks, we actually go through the backlog. And uh, we put anybody who has actually inputted an idea or has heard an idea from other cross-functional partners has to put their name behind this uh, piece in the backlog. That's either the uh, user story, use case, or whatever the definition of that project is. And so if we all sit in a room and we're like, what is this? And that owner of whoever inputted it into the backlog cannot describe it in a full way, then we know that person has to go back to the drawing board. And say, in order to submit something like this, I need to know all of these other requirements. It doesn't mean that a full user story at that point needs to be um, spec'd out, but we have to understand what the problem at hand is. And so if we don't understand the problem or we disagree on the problem, it's probably going to get a low score anyways. And in order for someone to champion it, they really have to be quite clear about what that uh, backlog meaning is. Makes sense. So kind of along that that line with the model, do you see that certain requests that fit into one of the three buckets tend to win win out more? Like do the customer requests supersede any of the other kind of requests? Yeah. So actually to go into even more detail on our model, what we do is we say the customer requests could be a couple different things. So they could be um, things that we're hearing from the support team. And so that would be like a, I guess, a sub bullet inside the customer bucket. Or it could be things that we're hearing from our community forum. And so both of these could be really important inputs for us. Either like our support threads are just getting way out of hand and like the support team can't manage everything. So for that quarter, for instance, let's say our support requests are highest priority. We just need to decrease those. Then we'll put that as a higher weight into the average that's being calculated because we really want to push that metric down for the quarter. And a lot of this goes back, again, to the OKRs. Everything kind of feeds in and out of itself of what we're trying to accomplish. Similarly with metrics movement, maybe our risk loss is like really important for us that quarter. And so we will prioritize and make sure that we call out, would it have any material impact on risk loss? If not, it'll get a lower score. With all else being equal, like we've we've weighted risk as being a big deal for us that quarter. And so we'll actually put weights around things you kind of see the outcome as based on what weights you've all agreed to for either the quarter or the year, or however you want to um, kind of arrange it and collaborate with your own team. But it's never like customer success will always win or the customer bucket will always win because you've already weighted it unless you've weighted it where it's like 90% customer um, bucket and 10% for everything else. That, that part has, should already be determined before you kind of go into this operational process. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. So you mentioned, you know, a meeting where it's like the engineering leads, the design leads, product leads. Mm-hmm. So just kind of piggybacking that ballpark, how many people work at Square or how many teams do you have now? 
Oh, we have, I think we're close to 3,000 employees worldwide, but the invoices team is a lot smaller than that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's okay. So my question is basically, um, when we look at a lot of big companies or enterprises or as companies grow, they, mm-hmm. they have to adjust with that to keep their teams aligned with what the vision is for the product and keeping them motivated and aware. So you know, a typical kind of meeting or ceremony you hear them start to adopt is like a scrum of scrums. So my question was like, how do you all stay tied together with what you're all each working on? Because I'm sure there's times when the problems you're solving or the requirements are going to kind of intersect and you're going to have to work together or look out for that. Yeah, I think we do kind of use a scrum of scrums idea. So on the roadmap, we have we have a call out for the folks that are responsible from, there's one person responsible from the engineering, design, and product side of the house. Sometimes we have more uh, responsible parties on the engineering side because you need someone for each platform, like web, mobile, and server. Um, but we have someone that's kind of like supposed to be on, on top of every uh, project from each discipline. And so those project teams tend to get together uh, more frequently to either have stand-up or sprint planning in and of themselves. And then we also have across all projects that are happening for this product, planning weeks and retros and under classical uh, sprint style um, meetings for everyone. But usually it's only the direct responsible parties that are speaking on behalf of the entire team, because otherwise it would just get too long of a meeting, uh, too many updates. There'd be just so much going on. Uh, but we try to kind of create these smaller teams that then feed into the larger one. And then even within our product teams, we then report out so that other product teams kind of know what's happening. And then our VPs and C-level, C-suite folks can also see and connect the dots uh, at their level. So very interesting. Can you speak a little bit more to that planning week and what that looks like? And then the output of how you report out, you know, just in general, what you have going on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that planning week, it's really focused for engineering. It's just focused time where they're not trying to build, but also plan. And so it creates a little bit of a break in between our cycles where we say, okay, for this week, you know, the the work that's going to be happening, we all kind of understand what the customer problem is. We understand why we need to be doing it and why it's a priority at this moment. And then at that point, the product piece has been defined or the business case has been defined. And then design has usually by that point also done several versions of um, exploratory work and have some mocks that are pretty close to complete. And then all of that has already been work that's been done with engineering involved. So even from the definition phase to the exploratory phase, engineering has always been involved so that we can make sure that the stuff that we are talking about isn't completely out of left field. But then at at the point where there's a planning week, that means um, ENT has a lot of the definitions And now we need to go into, okay, what's going to happen week over week? And what do we know versus what do we not know how to do just yet? And so any work could be really just, it's it's a simple document where we just say, okay, here's the work. Here's what we need to get to. What are the things that we need to build in order to get to that point? And uh, the discussion is led by the engineering lead with inputs from the entire team. We rotate who the lead is and we say, okay, uh, for this project, so-and-so was really interested in being the lead. So therefore... They're really just the point person that I can go to with any questions, uh, design can go to with any questions, uh, and then everyone from Eng is kind of reporting status and uh, updates to them. And so they will go through and say, okay, for server work, here are the endpoints we need to make sure we have. For the mobile team, uh, when can we expect an Android version versus an iOS version? And then they break down that problem into even more granular details 
and week over week, here's what we should expect. If something isn't a green light in a particular week, that means it's going to be moving into that next week. And then I can look at their breakdown document and say, in week three, oh crap, we're really behind because everything's red instead of green. And I can either go into the JIRA tickets to learn more about what just happened, or I can go talk to that engineer lead and say, okay, what are some of the trade-offs? Where can we either cut out requirements, change the scope, or what do we need to do to change the timeline? Awesome. That was a really long answer to your question, but I hope it covered everything. <laughs> I think it's great information because people are doing their work day to day all the time. And they sometimes don't get to hear other perspectives of how other companies work, you know, whether they're in Silicon Valley or not. So it's really good to just hear about how the day to day happens. Like, how does this software actually get made? Because it's really not magic. You know, there's no special sauce. It's just it's grinding through and, and prioritizing and making sure that you're on top of everything. Yeah. And it's, I think uh, what we've learned is, like you said, there's no special sauce in this. And a lot of it is just operational processes that either will work for us or won't. And then we'll throw them out if they don't, and we'll try something else. We try not to get too heavy handed on the process, but communication, it's an N squared problem, right? With N being the number of people you have on the team. (laughs) Of course. It just is exponential and we need to make sure that we're all kind of aligned. And so this works for us, but I love talking to other product folks on like what's worked for them in the past, what hasn't, just to keep our process as like as lean as possible, but also affording the, I guess, the structure with some of the benefits of creativity within that structure. Yeah, I have an opinion around that. So process itself, it's a word that generally means restrictive, right? Like you have to follow this process. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially in software, if we've learned nothing else over the last few decades, is that we need to give teams a certain degree of flexibility to produce the best possible exactly. products. We know that. So it's better if we frame what we would normally call a process as a best practice. Like these are the best practices as we know them today. That doesn't mean we're not open to changing them, but this is what's helped us provide predictable results over the years. These are the best practices that we know, but we should be o- always be open to adjusting them and experimenting with those just like we do with our features of our software products, right? Yeah, no, I love that. I think the words matter, language matters. And so just even changing the framework, like even when you said that in my mind, it just changed how I thought about the ways that we do our process and in just changing it to best practices means rules that are allowed to be broken and they should be if, if something changes. Right. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be accountable for that. I mean, if you're going to make a change to a best practice, you should have a good reason and it should be treated as an experiment. Yes. Yeah. That's very cool. All right. Next question we have for you is around motivation. And the product that you're building is an invoicing product. It is. Yep. It's not so sexy. No offense. <laughs> right. So how do you get the team motivated to produce the best possible product? Um, you know, I guess I'm pretty fortunate in that, like the team that I work with is very passionate about this. Um, I think that it doesn't come with a certain degree of a product mindset in all of the disciplines. And what I mean by that is like having some user empathy or customer empathy around what we do. So for the folks that aren't already pretty jazzed about, you know, providing payments in an invoicing format, um, I I love bringing them along in customer interviews, in on-site visits, that kind of stuff, because it just puts a face or a story to the problem. And it still affects me even now after having done however many thousands of hours of interviews over the years, just when I I talk to someone and they are kind of holding back tears on a phone call where they tell me that we offered them capital financing from Square at the very moment that they weren't able to continue their business. And because of our financing, 
it extended their cash flow for another 30 or 60 days when their invoice was getting paid. And that was just like awe-inspiring to see how many small businesses and uh, customers we have who just rely on this type of suite of products that all of Square has in order to, I mean, make a living, but then also achieve a lot of the professional dreams and goals that they even set for themselves where they're starting something on their own or they're trying to build something for their community. And it's just a really fun aspect to be a part of that story with them. I think that's so important. Yeah. You just mentioned about telling stories to your team because the first thing someone might think when they hear invoicing is, oh, you're just sending receipts. But really, you're allowing them to conduct business and conduct it well. And, and it's taking something that's typically a nightmare of a process and making it easy. And that's just so important to give your teams, and this is for all the, the product managers out there, you know, newer to it or, you know, been doing it a while. Like, don't forget to do that and, you know, yeah. do it regularly. Like, they, they should Absolutely. be hearing and seeing all that. Like, like you said, take them along with you sometimes. That's amazing. No, that was the best answer ever. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> and it supports this ongoing theory that I have and that we push here in that any compelling vision has got to connect the people that are achieving the vision to the people that we're solving problems for. You hit the nail on the head. And I think you know taking your people to meet with real customers and making sure that they really understand the problems that they're solving for other people, that's what underlies all motivation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of science to prove that. And we talk about that stuff a lot on the podcast, but you just hit the nail on the head. Yeah, it's eye-opening. I mean, for all of us too. I still, still love those customer conversations to this day. It's kind of the best thing about being a product manager is having those on a regular basis. And then also having the team like realize after two or three conversations, there's definite patterns that already start emerging of, oh, this would be something cool to do versus we absolutely need these types of things. And for us, the thing that I constantly hear is about faster payments and like your cash flow piece, right? It's if I don't get this money like immediately or yesterday, I don't have enough to fund the next project that I want to go do. And if I don't have that, cash flow just becomes this recurring nightmare for our sellers. And so kind of realizing we're not just an invoicing product, but the payments piece is so crucial. And how we look at payments, it's not just, is it a pretty looking invoice, but all of the key pieces right underneath that, I think Square does a really good job of being a little bit like an iceberg where you just see the the top piece of that iceberg and it's very simple and clean and to the point and the designs are really well done. I think our product engineering and product design team are just incredible at what they do because they take all that complexity that lies underneath the water and just hide that from a lot of our customers that don't need to know, you know, how does a payment actually happen? And it hides a lot of the financing tools that we need in order to be able to offer this type of loans to our customers. And so the ability to take something really complex and messy and tough to handle and make that really beautiful, simple, elegant, and remarkable at the end is a lot of work. And if you can highlight to your team why that piece is so important, why hiding it is very important, why people care about the key pieces of your value props um, and how to make those even better, that becomes your differentiator and your source of lifelong customers. Again, you hit the nail on the head. Just a little side note. Um... I've been a Square customer since the beginning of time. Oh, no way. Okay, yeah, cool. So I've got a little side hustle. I started buying and selling antique jewelry as a very oh, wow. young guy, like 16 years old. The first credit card I took was from Square. And I've been a huge fan ever wow. since. I was such a big fan that in my little local antique community, you know, I got a ton of people to sign up you know, very early on. And again, so cool. I've always believed that Square has found success because of their focus on the user experience 
and putting their customers first. And you guys certainly lived that set of values. Oh, that's great. I'm so happy to hear that. That's fantastic. I, the product side of me wants to hear all of your feedback now, but I don't think <laughs> have time for all of that on, on this podcast. But at some point, I'm going to be reaching out to hear what's what's good, what's bad, what's working, what's not. <laughs> to be honest, it's a side hustle, and I don't do it a whole lot anymore. If I do set up at shows, it's only for charities. It's for Got not-for-profits. It. Got it. Um, and I bring my kids along. Oh, cool. When my son was literally five years old, he could process a credit card and Wow. <laughs> take a picture for a ring. So that's great. <laughs> that's awesome. We should have him on some of the commercials. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's 18 now, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So we're tie- we're talking about tying, you know, your teams to your your customers a lot. So I have to ask, do you use user personas in any way, shape, or form? And if so, how deep do you go using them? Meaning, you know, some people use them in their roadmaps to prioritize all the way down to obviously as a persona name and their stories, you know, having it right down in there. Uh, we don't use the traditional sense of customer personas because we are, um, as a company, kind of focused on jobs to be done. And so we have jobs-based uh, language that kind of breaks things down into more detail. We don't say like, you know, 25% of our roadmap needs to fit this job, but it's more of either how important or how impactful is it on, on kind of our um, three buckets checklist based on, on all of the different criteria that we have listed out. Uh, but we will say like the reason that we're doing Project X is because it helps our customers um, accomplish this and the customers that need this higher square in order to do X, Y, and Z. And so we do use a lot of the jobs language. Uh, we also use, um, I, I sometimes do deep dives into like week-long interviews of just hiring jobs or just our firing jobs. The reasons that people choose Square Invoices, the, people, uh, the reason people leave Square Invoices, and really understanding what kind of buckets are there of different jobs that we satisfy or we fail at for our customers. And so we reorganize things. Uh, it's not just bottoms up of here are all the tickets, here's the backlog, here's the roadmap. It's also looking at things and challenging ourselves from top down, saying, okay, what's out there in the competitive landscape? What uh, jobs do we satisfy versus a PayPal or a QuickBooks? What jobs do those uh, tools satisfy? And why would you choose one versus the other? And really understanding that core need and then also the acquisition piece. It's, it's both for product and it also definitely helps product marketing. Yeah, a lot of the roadmaps that we're trying to push now don't include features, they include problems to solve. Yes. Yeah. So that's what we're tending to get drawn towards and move towards. So you mentioned the iceberg example before, and we use that analogy a lot here too. So I'm curious, you know, when you're working on any kind of a product at Square, how do you factor in the non-functional requirements, the NFRs, such as security, performance, tech debt? compliance? Like how do you build those into your, your roadmap and backlog ultimately? Yeah, those usually go into kind of our PRDs, our product requirements documents to make sure that things are kind of at least accounted for or unknown to our teams that care about the security and compliance pieces. So we, we will actually kind of outline for legal or compliance or our risk teams, hey, we're going to go do this work. We're going to build it in this way. That's kind of a known pattern uh, around Square. And we want to just make sure that their eyes are on it so that they know that this is happening. If they have any issues with the design or how we're going to go build it, it's known way before the project kind of gets kicked off. But we don't necessarily have a roadmap item that says, 
make sure all of the tech debt that we've accumulated for all of compliance is done by this date, unless there's some sort of like uh, new uh, GDPR type of law that's in place and mm -hmm. there is an actual date. We try to build all of that into each product uh, work stream that we work on. We don't want any holes in our security with any new feature. We don't want any new legal issues with features that don't get accounted for for six months or something like that. So we try to put those part and parcel with the work that we do. That makes perfect sense. Those are non-negotiables. Exactly. Last question. We ask all of our guests, one book that you found powerful enough that you recommend it to your team or to other people in this industry? So, okay. The one that um, I really like, and I've gotten as a gift, uh, just, it's a really small, short book, but it's so fantastic. It's called Steal Like an Artist, Austin Kleon, K-L-E-O-N. It's just a great way to remember how to break some rules and uh, kind of get out of the box thinking of, uh, like we were talking about how process can help, but then also, you know, breaking some of the, the paradigms and working like an artist in the things that you do day to day. Again, it's very short, very small little, it's actually a small, physically small book, um, but I really enjoy it. It's just fun to read. And I often find myself kind of going back to it and trying to remember some of the quotes that he puts in the book just to kind of push my own thinking. I mean, it's not really like a product or business book. So I am also starting to read uh, Principles by Ray Dalio and just finished up Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Sorry, got those names mixed up. Both of those, just like wonderful. So far I, on principles, just a great framework that Ray kind of puts together in his past background. Um, but they're both like 700 page books. So I, and I love reading like, <laughs> real books. I don't have a Kindle version. I'm the same way. No, there's something really nice about the tactile version of, you know, reading. <laughs> and I just read a statistic, you know, every form of media is on rapid decline, right? From obviously music and video, all that stuff is dying. Mm -hmm. It's all being, everything's being streamed. But books, they're still expecting to continue to grow at one to 2% forever into the future. And they're st still pretty solid. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I, I really enjoy having an actual, like, that's the, the first hardware <laughs> that I've had. So it's just really nice to have a book, but I will warn the listeners here, those are like really big ones. And I have accidentally fallen asleep with one and like had to wake up because it was hurting. It was like on my chest and it was stopping my breathing. So maybe get the Kindle version or the audio version, but they're both fantastic books. Cool. Well, I definitely like the first one that you mentioned, the idea of stealing from artists. I think it was, uh, what was that guy's name? Bernard of Chartres, I think. Stand we are all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Mm. All yes. of our discoveries, there's really nothing new. Exactly. You know, we're, we're putting things together in new combinations, but we're all standing on the Exactly. Floor. Yes. And it's really about that. It's, there's very few and rare true innovations. Right. It's about how do you re, reapply some known things. Uh, one of my professors from my MBA um, once said, well stolen is half done. And I still <laughs> use that this day. I love it. It's so I love true. It. Well stolen is half done. <laughs> That's a good one. Awesome. Well, Rohini, thank you for joining us today. It was amazing to hear and get a glimpse into how Square works and how you specifically work with your team and manage roadmaps and backlogs and motivation. So thank you so much. Thank you both very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, super impressed. Very good interview. Thank you so much for your time and taking the time out of your data to join us for this. So, And you mentioned Medium. Where else can people find you if they want to connect? I'm also on Twitter. Uh, it's at Rohini P. And if you, I'm sure I'm on 
LinkedIn. I'm the only Rohini that's at Square, so you should be able to find me. <laughs> All right. Outstanding. Well, thank you again so much. Awesome. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you later. Okay. All right. So that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, we would really, really appreciate and love if you could leave us a review. We do read all that feedback. And if you have any suggestions on topics or guests that you'd like to hear on the podcast, please let us know. And we are sponsored by ITX, a full lifecycle software development company. And I hear they produce some really excellent blog content about these episodes and other related topics that you can subscribe to. So if you are just wanting to consume content forever about software development, digital products, how to build them and build them right, build them for the right people. Go to productmomentum.fm and you can sign up for our list. Thanks everyone. Until next time.